Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my hairi mai. I'm John McDonald. Kia ora and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 9th of March. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we hear more in our history series with Vin or Snowbeans from Upper Hutt Library's archives. This week Vin talks about his childhood days in Upper Hutt and the first family home. We have another entry in the Hut Gardener's Journal looking at March gardening tasks. We start a short story reading. It's one of Catherine Mansfield's early works, Prelude, which is set in Wellington in the late 1800s. And there is plenty of local music from T-Bone, I Like to Ramble, Edio Strange, Fixin' to Drown and Avalon Intermediate School's Kapahaka Group. Well, let's start the show with some new poetry from a regular Hut Zone contributor. I'm Arlene Croft and I'm reading a poem by David Smith entitled Water, Water Everywhere. Water, water everywhere, yet people don't think tank. Water, water everywhere. Yet people's thoughts stay blank. Water, water everywhere. Yet people still sit on the bank. Water, water everywhere. Yet many people don't prioritise rank. Water, water everywhere. Yet people wonder so many feeling dank. Water, water everywhere. Yet few people are buying rope by the hank. Water, water everywhere. Yet people wonder why so many hopes and dreams sank when we fail to make use of the water before it stank. And that was a 2023 poem from Wanyamata's David Smith, read by Trentham's Arlene Croft. Time for our weekly local short story. It's part one of a Catherine Mansfield story, first published in 1920. Listen out to the description of Wellington Harbour with some very familiar reference points some 103 years later. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prelude by Catherine Mansfield Part 1 There was not an inch of room for Lottie and Keisha in the buggy. When Pat swung them on top of the luggage, they wobbled. The grandmother's lap was full, and Linda Burnell could not possibly have held the lump of a child on hers for any distance. Isabel, very superior, was perched beside the new handyman on the driver's seat. Hall dolls, bags and boxes were piled on the floor. These are absolute necessities that I will not let out of my sight for one instant, said Linda Burnell, her voice trembling with fatigue and excitement. 
Lottie and Keja stood on the patch of lawn just inside the gate, all ready for the fray in their coats with brass anchor buttons and little round caps with battleship ribbons. Hand in hand they stared with round, solemn eyes, first at the absolute necessities and then at their mother. We shall simply have to leave them, that is all. We shall simply have to cast them off, said Linda Burnell. A strange little laugh flew from her lips. She leaned back against the buttoned leather cushions and shut her eyes, her lips trembling with laughter. Happily, at that moment, Mrs. Samuel Josephs, who had been watching the scene from behind her drawing-room blind, waddled down the garden path. "'Why not leave the children with B for the afternoon, Mrs. Buddell? They could go on the dray with the store ban when he comes in the evening. Those things on the path have to go, don't they?' "'Yes, everything outside the house is supposed to go,' said Linda Burnell, and she waved a white hand at the tables and chairs standing on their heads on the front lawn. How absurd they looked. Either they ought to be the other way up, or Lottie and Keisha ought to stand on their heads too, and she longed to say, Stand on your heads, children, wait for the storeman. It seemed to her that would be so exquisitely funny that she could not attend to Mrs. Samuel Joseph's. The fat, creaking body leaned across the gate, and the big jelly of a face smiled. Don't you worry, Mrs. Bordell. Lottie and Keisha can have tea with my children in the nursery, and I'll see Deb on the day afterwards, the grandmother considered. Yes, it really is quite the best plan. We are very obliged to you, Mrs. Samuel Josephs. Children, say thank you to Mrs. Samuel Josephs. Two subdued chirrups. Thank you, Mrs. Samuel Josephs. And be good, little girls, and come closer. They advanced. Don't forget to tell Mrs. Samuel Josephs when you want to. No, Grandma. Don't worry, Mrs. Bordell. At the last moment, Keisha let go of Lottie's hand and darted it towards the buggy. I want to kiss my Grandma goodbye again. But she was too late. The buggy rolled off up the road. Isabel, bursting with pride, her nose turned up at all the world. Linda Burnell, prostrated, and the grandmother rummaging among the very curious oddments that she had put in her black silk recticule at the last moment for something to give her daughter. The buggy twinkled away in the sunlight, and fine golden dust up the hill and over. Keisha bit her lip, but Lottie, carefully finding her handkerchief first, set up a wail. Mother! Grandma! Mrs. Samuel Josephs, like a huge, warm, black silk tea cozy, enveloped her. It's all right, my dear. Be a brave child. You'll come and play in the nursery. She put her arm round, weeping Lottie, and led her away. Keisha followed, making a face at Mrs. Samuel Joseph's placket, which was undone as usual, with two long pink corset laces hanging out of it. Lottie's weeping died down as she mounted the stairs, but the sight of her at the nursery door with swollen eyes and a blob of a nose gave great satisfaction to the S.J.'s, who sat on two benches before a long table covered with American cloth and set out with immense plates of bread and dripping and two brown jugs that faintly steamed. Hello, you've been crying. Oh, your eyes have gone right in. Doesn't her nose look funny? You're all red and patchy. Lottie was quite a success. She felt it and swelled, smiling timidly. Go and sit by Zadie, ducky, said Mrs. Samuel Josephs, and Keisha, you sit at the end by Moses. Moses grinned and gave her a nip as she sat down, but she pretended not to notice. She did hate boys. Which will you have? asked Stanley, leaning across the table very politely and smiling at her. Which will you have to begin with, strawberries and cream or bread and dripping? 
strawberries and cream, please, said she. Ah, how they all laughed and beat the table with their teaspoons. Wasn't that a take-in, wasn't it now? Didn't he fox her, good old Stan? Ma, she thought it was real. Even Mrs. Samuel Josephs, pouring out the milk and water, could not help smiling. You busted teased double the last day, she wheezed. But Keisha bit a big piece out of her bread and dripping, and then stood the piece up on her plate. With the bite out, it made a dear little sort of a gate. Pooh, she didn't care. A tear rolled down her cheek, but she wasn't crying. She couldn't have cried in front of those awful Samuel Josephs. She sat with her head bent, and as the tear dripped slowly down, she caught it with a neat little whisk of her tongue and ate it before any of them had seen. Two. After tea, Keisha wandered back to their own house. Slowly, she walked up the back steps and through the scullery into the kitchen. Nothing was left in it but a lump of gritty yellow soap in one corner of the kitchen windowsill and a piece of flannel stained with a blue bag in another. The fireplace was choked up with rubbish. She poked among it but found nothing except a hair tidy with a heart painted on it that had belonged to the servant girl. Even that she left lying, and she trailed through the narrow passage into the drawing-room. The Venetian blind was pulled down, but not drawn close. Long pencil rays of sunlight shone through, and the wavy shadow of a bush outside danced on the gold lines. Now it was still. Now it began to flutter again. And now it came almost as far as her feet. Zoom, zoom! A blue bottle knocked against the ceiling. The carpet tacks had little bits of red fluff sticking to them. The dining room window had a square of colored glass at each corner. One was blue and one was yellow. Keisha bent down to have one more look at a blue lawn with blue arum lilies growing at the gate, and then at a yellow lawn with yellow lilies and a yellow fence. As she looked, a little Chinese lottie came out to the lawn and began to dust the tables and chairs with a corner of her pinafore. Was that really Lottie? Keisha was not quite sure until she had looked through the ordinary window. Upstairs in her father's and mother's room she found a pillbox, black and shiny outside and red in, holding a blob of cotton wool. I could keep a bird's egg in that, she decided. In a servant girl's room there was a stay button stuck in a crack of the floor, and in another crack some beads and a long needle. She knew there was nothing in her grandmother's room. She had watched her pack. She went over to the window and leaned against it, pressing her hands against the pane. Keisha liked to stand so before the window. She liked the feeling of the cold, shining glass against her hot palms. And she liked to watch the funny white tops that came on her fingers when she pressed them hard against the pane. As she stood there, the day flickered out and dark came. With the dark crept the wind, snuffling and howling. The windows of the empty house shook. A creaking came from the walls and floors. A piece of loose iron on the roof banged forlornly. Keisha was suddenly quite, quite still. With wide open eyes and knees pressed together, she was frightened. She wanted to call Lottie and to go on calling all the while she ran downstairs and out of the house. But it was just behind her, waiting at the door, at the head of the stairs, at the bottom of the stairs, hiding in the passage, ready to dart out at the back door, but Lottie was at the back door, too. Keisha, she called cheerfully. The storeman's here. Everything is on the dray, and three horses, Keisha. Mrs. Samuel Josephs has given us a big shawl to wear around us, and she says to button up your coat. 
She won't come out because of asthma. Lottie was very important. Now then, you kids, called the storeman. He hooked his big thumbs under their arms and up they swung. Lottie arranged the shawl most beautifully and the storeman tucked up their feet in a piece of old blanket. Lift up. Easy does it. They might have been a couple of young ponies. The storeman felt over the cords holding his load, unhooked the brake chain from the wheel, and, whistling, he swung up beside them. Keep close to me, said Lottie, because otherwise you pull the shawl away from my side, Keisha. But Keisha edged up to the storeman. He towered beside her, big as a giant, and he smelled of nuts and new wooden boxes. 3. It was the first time that Lottie and Keisha had ever been out so late. Everything looked different. The painted wooden houses far smaller than they did by day, the gardens far bigger and wilder. Bright stars speckled the sky, and the moon hung over the harbour, dabbling the waves with gold. They could see the lighthouse shining on Quarantine Island, and the green lights on the old coal hulks. There comes the Picton boat, said the storeman, pointing to a little steamer, all hung with bright beads. When they reached the top of the hill and began to go down the other side, the harbour disappeared, and, although they were still in the town, they were quite lost. Other carts rattled past. Everybody knew the storeman. Night, Fred! Night-o! he shouted. Keisha liked very much to hear him. Whenever a cart appeared in the distance, she looked up and waited for his voice. He was an old friend, and she and her grandmother had often been to his place to buy grapes. The storeman lived alone in a cottage that had a glass house against one wall built by himself. All the glass house was spanned and arched over with one beautiful vine. He took her brown basket from her, lined it with three large leaves, and then he felt in his belt for a little horn knife, reached up, and snapped off a big blue cluster and laid it on the leaves so tenderly that Keisha held her breath to watch. He was a very big man. He wore brown velvet trousers, and he had a long brown beard, but he never wore a collar, not even on Sunday. The back of his neck was burnt bright red. Where are we now? Every few minutes one of the children asked him the question. Why, this is Hog Street, or Charlotte Crescent. Of course it is. Lottie pricked up her ears at the last name, she always felt that Charlotte Crescent belonged specially to her. Very few people had streets with the same name as theirs. Look, Keisha, there is Charlotte Crescent. Doesn't it look different? Now everything familiar was left behind. Now the big dray rattled into unknown country along new roads with high clay banks on either side, up steep, steep hills, down into bushy valleys, through wide, shallow rivers. Further and further, Lottie's head wagged. She drooped. She slipped half into Keisha's lap and lay there. But Keisha could not open her eyes wide enough. The wind blew, and she shivered, but her cheeks and ears burned. Do stars ever blow about? she asked. Not to notice, said the storeman. We've got an uncle and a aunt living near our new house, said Keisha. They have got two children. Pip, the eldest, is called, and the youngest name is Rags. He's got a ram. He has to feed it with an enamel teapot and a glove top over the spout. He's going to show us. What is the difference between a ram and a sheep? Well, a ram has horns and runs for you. Keisha considered. I don't want to see it frightfully, she said. I hate rushing animals like dogs and parrots. 
I often dream that animals rush at me, even camels, and while they are rushing, their heads swell e enormous. The storeman said nothing. Kija peered up at him, screwing up her eyes. Then she put her finger out and stroked his sleeve. It felt hairy. Are we near? she asked. Not far off now, answered the storeman. Getting tired. Well, I am not an atom bit sleepy, said Kija. But my eyes keep curling up in such a funny sort of way. She gave a long sigh, and to stop her eyes from curling, she shut them. When she opened them again, they were clanking through a drive that cut through the garden like a whiplash, looping suddenly an island of green, and behind the island, but out of sight until you came upon it, was the house. It was long and low-built, with a pillared veranda and a balcony all the way round. The soft, white bulk of it lay stretched upon the green garden like a sleeping beast. And now one, and now another of the windows leaped into light. Someone was walking through the empty rooms carrying a lamp. From a window downstairs the light of a fire flickered. A strange, beautiful excitement seemed to stream from the house in quivering ripples. Where are we? said Lottie, sitting up. Her reefer cap was all on one side, and on her cheek there was the print of an anchor button she had pressed against while sleeping. Tenderly, the storeman lifted her, set her cap straight, and pulled down her crumpled clothes. She stood blinking on the lowest veranda step, watching Keisha, who seemed to come flying through the air to her feet. Ooh! cried Keisha, flinging up her arms. The grandmother came out of the dark hall, carrying a little lamp. She was smiling. You found your way in the dark, said she. Perfectly well. But Lottie staggered on the lowest veranda step, like a bird fallen out of the nest. If she stood still for a moment, she fell asleep. If she leaned against anything, her eyes closed. She could not walk another step. Keisha, said the grandmother, can I trust you to carry the lamp? Yes, my grandma. The old woman bent down and gave the bright, breathing thing into her hands, and then she caught up drunken Lottie. This way, through a square hall filled with bales and hundreds of parrots, but the parrots were only on the wallpaper, down a narrow passage where the parrots persisted in flying past Keisha with her lamp. Be very quiet, warned the grandmother, putting down Lottie and opening the dining room door. Poor little mother has got such a headache. Linda Burnell, in a long cane chair, with her feet on a hassock and a plaid over her knees, lay before a crackling fire. Burnell and Beryl sat at the table in the middle of the room, eating a dish of fried chops and drinking tea out of a brown china teapot. Over the back of her mother's chair leaned Isabel. She had a comb in her fingers, and, in a gentle, absorbed fashion, she was combing the curls from her mother's forehead. Outside, the pool of lamp and firelight, the room stretched dark and bare to the hollow windows. Are those the children? But Linda did not really care. She did not even open her eyes to see. Put down the lamp, Keisha, said Aunt Beryl, or we shall have the house on fire before we are out of the packing cases. More tea, Stanley? Well, you might just give me five-eighths of a cup, said Burnell, leaning across the table. Have another chop, Beryl. Tip-top meat, isn't it? Not too lean and not too fat, he turned to his wife. You're sure you won't change your mind, Linda, darling? The very thought of it is enough. She raised one eyebrow in the way she had. The grandmother brought the children bread and milk, and they sat up to table, flushed and sleepy behind the wavy steam. I had meat for my supper, said Isabel, still calming gently. 
I had a whole chop for my supper, the bone and all, and Worcester sauce, didn't I, father? Oh, don't boast, Isabel, said Aunt Beryl. Isabel looked astounded. I wasn't boasting, was I, Mummy? I never thought of boasting. I thought they would like to know. I only meant to tell them. Very well, that's enough, said Burnell. He pushed back his plate, took a toothpick out of his pocket, and began picking his strong white teeth. You might see that Fred has a bite of something in the kitchen before he goes, will you, Mother? Yes, Stanley. The old woman turned to go. Oh, hold on half a jiffy. I suppose nobody knows where my slippers were put. I suppose I shall not be able to get at them for a month or two, what? Yes, came from Linda. In the top of the canvas hold-all marked urgent necessities. Well, you might get them for me, will you, Mother? Yes, Stanley. Burnell got up, stretched himself, and, going over to the fire, he turned his back to it and lifted up his coat-tails. By Jove, this is a pretty pickle, eh, Beryl? Beryl, sipping tea, her elbows on the table, smiled over the cup at him. She wore an unfamiliar pink pinafore. The sleeves of her blouse were rolled up to her shoulders, showing her lovely freckled arms, and she had let her hair fall down her back in a long pigtail. How long do you think it will take to get straight? A couple of weeks, eh? He chaffed. Good heavens, no, said Beryl airily. The worst is over already. The servant girl and I have simply slaved all day, and ever since Mother came she has worked like a horse too. We have never sat down for a moment. We have had a day. Stanley scented a rebuke. Well, I suppose you did not expect me to rush away from the office and nail carpets, did you? Certainly not, laughed Beryl. She put down her cup and ran out of the dining room. What the hell does she expect to do? asked Stanley. Sit down and fan herself with a palm leaf fan while I have a gang of professionals do the job? By Jove, if she can't do a hand's turn occasionally without shouting about it in return for— And he gloomed as the chops began to fight the tea in his sensitive stomach. But Linda put up a hand and dragged him down to the side of her long chair. This is a wretched time for you, old boy, she said. Her cheeks were very white, but she smiled and curled her fingers into the big red hand she held. Burnell became quiet. Suddenly he began to whistle, pure as a lily, joyous and free. A good sign. Think you're going to like it? he asked. I don't want to tell you, but I think I ought to, mother, said Isabel. Keisha is drinking tea out of Aunt Beryl's cup. I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was part one of Prelude by Catherine Mansfield, read by LibriVox's Ayamonga. You can hear more of their readings on their webpage which is LibriVox.org. Part two of Prelude plays next week. Time for some local music. From Edio Strange, John Archer and featuring Neil Warboys, here's their Cyclone Gabrielle memorial song, Fixin' to Drown. And I've come on all you good king men, y 
your council's rezoned land again. Away down yonder where the willows grow, a real good place for your crops to go. So put down your cash and pick up a loan. Get a brand new farm of your own. And here's one, two, three. What are we working for? Don't ask me, I lost all my land. Grab a shovel and give us a hand. And here's five, six, seven rain scoop of pelting down. No, we haven't got time to stand and frown. Your bro, we're all going to drown. Well, no roads in our hills, no crops in our plains. All washed away when Gabriel came. We've grown your food, followed your advice. So now's the time to start treating this nice. If there's not enough food for us all to be fed, your bro, lots of use will be dead. And it's one, two, three. What are we working for? Don't ask me, I've lost all my land. Grab yourself a shovel, give us a hand. And it's five, six, seven. Rain still bucketing down. No, we haven't got time to stand and frown. Look out, mate, we're going to drown. Look, the window.com on a Sunday night Predicting flood levels of incredible height But the powers that be said it's quite okay Gabriel won't wash your family away Then a river rose up on a Tuesday dawn And all friends of mine are all gone Now it's one, two, three What are we working for? Don't ask me, I've lost all my land Grab another shovel, give us a hand And it's five, six, seven, rain still persisting down. No, we haven't got time to stand and frown. Many men, we're all going to drown. You build more factories, you fell more trees, more dairy cows, drive as far as you please. You say there's been no climate changes. Tell that to us here on the Mullican Ranges. Greenhouse gets brought Gabriel, and all the gods on last become hell. And here's one, two, three, what are we working for? I don't ask me, I've lost all my lands. Grab a shovel and give us a hand. And here's five, six, seven, the rain stoops chundering down. This ain't the time to stand around and frown. The way we're all going to drown. Away! And that was Fixing to Drown from Lower Hutt's Edio Strange and Friends. Okay, time for another episode in our 2001 history series with Vin or Snow Bench from Upper Hutt Library's archives. The interviewer is Nicola Frean. to your childhood now, Vince. You grew up in Henry Street. Can you describe the house that you lived in for me? Yeah. Mum and Dad built it sometime after they came back from Tamanui. They'd lived in McFarland Street for maybe two or three years. And then I think they built their house in 7 Henry Street in about 1929 or 30 when born. It was a a weatherboard house. It only had two bedrooms and three boys, so three of us boys were in one room, which wasn't very big either. 
had a cold range for doing the cooking on. Um, had a sitting room, which in those days was not used. It was a sort of a strange thing. You had this sitting room that you had fireplace in it, but very rarely ever lit. And uh, Mum had a piano in there, and a chairs, uh, Chesterfield suite, which had a sheet over the top to keep it from getting dusty and things like that. And so <laughs> it was a bit of a waste of uh, a good quarter of the house, the kitchen dining room area, which was our living room which had the coal range in it was always kept warm with that because you had to have the coal range going even in the summertime you'd have to get up in the morning and light the coal range to boil the water your tea and make your porridge and cook your toast on the fire <coughs> you'd open the fire up and cook your toast on a on a long fork and you'd have a soup pot mm, yeah and uh you always had a kettle was always sitting on the top boiling away I've still got a cast iron kettle mm. and that was always boiling so if anybody wanted a cup of tea the water was always sitting there and you just kept filling it up. The wash house was the house but it was a, you went to go out the back door and there was a veranda along, running along it and there was a wash house on the, off the veranda which had a porch over it and a, a wooden rail along it. The toilet was outside as I might have mentioned before uh, the section with a can that was taken by the night soil people. How often was it taken? Every week, yeah. Mm. At night time you'd, uh, we'd be in bed and you'd hear a man down, walking down the drive with a kerosene lantern, <laughs> change of cans, and he'd clatter away up the drive and you'd hear him take off up the street to the next house. He had a, a car? A, a truck. A truck. truck and they used to change the cans, yeah. <laughs> Rather than a savoury job, but it's something that had to be done. Yeah. It was called the night soil man. Dad used to um, do the maintenance on the truck. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't smell over great. Where did they take it? I think early days they used to take it up the road. I don't know where they dumped it. But I think later on it was uh, in, at Trentham. I think perhaps they had a sewer system or something at Trentham. Later on, Mum got a, an electric stove, a refrigerator, and uh, we got a flush toilet built on the end of the veranda, which was uh, a lot better. We had a massive big um, totra tree behind the house, and I think it's still there. Enormous thing, but it used to uh, also provide lots of wetters. So wetters used to get inside the house and we used to keep our in the wash house hanging on a hook which is uh, as I say off the veranda and uh, whenever you'd go and put your oilskin coat on you'd uh, have a good look inside that there wasn't a wetter in it uh, which quite often happened. Yes there was the, the old two wooden tubs made out of cowrie with a hand wringer on and a, a copper which was a boiler, a water boiler with a fire underneath and was sitting on a concrete pad every Monday morning. Mum would have to do the washing, like Grandma before we'd mentioned last week. You boil up the copper, put all your clothes in, and boil them up on that. Drag them out of that with a with an old stick. And in Mum's case, it was an old axe handle. That I can remember. You used to dig into the boiling water, and pull the sheets out or whatever you had, and then into the tub full of clean cold water, dip them in there, then wind the ringer and ring them through into another tub, then into the clothes basket or 
into clothes basket and then sheets and all the whites were all put back through a blue water you put blue bag in the, in the clear water again and then rinse them through that then wind them through again and uh, that made all your sheets and white shirts and everything that white beautiful white mm. personal white as they call it now um, and then hang them up now that used to major job that was all Monday morning washing clothes and each uh, when when you had a washing board and I think that whether you washed them on the board after they came out of the board or before but everything was with hand soap and on a washing board oh, made out of white pine white washing board uh, so it was a major job what on earth did you do if it rained on Monday afternoon Oh, I don't know how they got, there's no such things as dryers. And it was one day a week, wash day was one day a week. You sort of, um, you didn't change your clothes every day like you do now. Sometimes you change clothes twice a week, but... Um, what sort of clothes did you wear when you were a child? As a boy, um, Mum used to make our, our trousers, and they, were <laughs> they would be lined with... Um, flower bags. Now I don't know whether what a flower bag is but you used to buy flour and 25 pound cloth. Cloth, yeah. Well, cloth cloth bags. That. Yeah, cloth bags. And uh, so calico you, ca calico or muslin cotton. Cotton, I suppose it was more of a cottony thing, yeah. Right. And mm. uh, so your trousers would be lined with that. You didn't have under, under, undergarments in those days. Uh, you'd wore a singlet a cotton singlet um, and a shirt and jerseys, um, knitted jerseys or bought jerseys. Um, maybe having knitted jerseys, I don't know whether mum knitted them or my aunties or what. We always wore, for footwear, uh, boots. And you'd have a, one pair of boots for the winter, which you would uh, use for school. If you went out or went to Wellington or went to church, they would be uh, polished black with a black nugget and they would be then when they wore out you'd get them half sold in the yeah. summertime we would have crepe rubber sold sandals without socks so that was yeah. our footwear you had two set, two pair of footwear and that was it and did you wear a hat no some hats or? never wore a hat ever i haven't worn a hat until i was i suppose uh, five years ago before i started wearing a hat when I, when I heard all the scares of skin cancers and things like that of my friends are getting on the heads and faces and necks and so I always wear a, a hat now outside but up until then I'm quite proud of the fact that I'd never worn a hat in my life mm -hmm. uh, as such. When we were little though, yeah I'm, I'm, yeah I'm not quite right there, when we were little I've got photos of us with hats on, sun hats on um, but uh, I guess we didn't carry on with that for for very long. Floppy, edged, sewn-up calico hats. <laughs> and did you worry about sunscreen? No, no such thing. Oh, yeah. No, we didn't. No, we didn't even think about it. But when we got, we wouldn't put anything on before. But when we'd go, say, um, out haymaking all day, or we'd go to this day we'd have at the beach and we'd get sunburned and get red and burnt, which is just what happened. We didn't think much about it, didn't think much about it. You would have a, a mixture, a, 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 um, a lotion called Q-Tol. Q, 
T-O-L, lotion. It was a pink fluid, and you would uh, rub that on your burnt nose and your forehead and your cheeks and your stinging shoulders and back and try and sleep. <laughs> oh. um, but there were no sunblocks or nobody really thought it was anything. You just put up with it, and after you've had a few burns, you used to get brown and didn't worry you. And so I used to go without my shirt on for years. Can you describe um, some of the games that you played as a child? I know you said earlier yeah. that you weren't very keen on sports. Well, yeah, well, but, uh, one of the reasons I, that I wasn't keen on sport, one of why I wasn't uh, very interested in cricket or football or things like that, but I used to enjoy ball and bat games. Uh, but one of my problems was with having, um, well, it was the same with the three of us boys, with having our cross eyes, and having them, uh, I had mine operated on when I was seven, had it straightened, and my other brothers after me. To straighten the eye, but I never got the sight back into it. And so I've always had only one eye, for vision from one eye, that's usable anyway. And so I can't catch, because I've got no view-finding capabilities. So I could, I missed balls, I couldn't hit a tennis ball with a racket or a a baseball very well and I couldn't catch a ball and I used to get a lot of flack from the teachers at school and uh, from all the other kids. Bings, can't you catch? Uh, and I said, no, I can't. I didn't know why at the time. I had no idea. That was my problem. I didn't find that out till later in life <laughs> that I never had any vision finding uh, distance. I can always go and grab it and the ball was either before me or after me. So that put me off ball games. Well, I don't think I was really interested in it anyway. But we used to play lots of games on the... All the kids around the street, there were a number of them, used to come round after tea in the summertime and we would play non-stop cricket on the front lawn and um, Barbador running between. You'd get all of us would stand down one end of the lawn and there'd be one person in the middle would have to tag you as you ran through to the other and then they would come on the team and until it got down till there was perhaps one or two left, yeah. Bull rush, is that? Is that what you call bull rush, oh, yeah. I think so. Um, <laughs> games like that. Um, what did he call it? Barbador. How do you spell that? I've never seen it written down. Oh, Barbador. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I often wonder now whether it shouldn't be called bar the door, which sounds more logical. Stop the door. So it probably, but we just call it Barbador, but it probably originally was meant to be called Bar the Door. <laughs> One of those things of tradition that you never quite found out what they were. <laughs> I'm John McDonald, and you are in the Hot Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Vin Benj talking to Nicola Freyan in 2001 on his memories of an early upper hut. 
Thank you to Upper Hutt Libraries for letting us play that interview. Part 17 plays next week. Okay, time for some more music. This time from former Wanyamata-based musicians T-Bone, and it's I Like to Ramble. And that was T-Bone and I Like to Ramble. 
Well, I certainly like to garden, and I know it's been a while since I took you outside to my Korokoro garden. Time for a autumn hut gardener's journal edition here. And what we're doing today is a bit of a seasonal tidy up. You may hear in the background there we're doing a bit of hedge trimming, box hedge trimming, just tidying them up before their autumn growth slows down. They're looking a bit sort of straggly and tall in places, so we just got out the electric hedge trimmer and just keeping them into the normal height which is about knee high but it's looking nice the student gardener's doing a, a good job there this time of year is quite a good time of year actually for keep gathering up seeds and what I've got up here for the first time is some acanthus plants which I grew from seeds myself a couple of years ago and this year was the first time that one of them was quite sharp actually went to seed and had flowers and then went to seed it's a good five foot high that flower stake and it's got oh ooh, probably a good 15 swollen seed pods quite like little lemons actually now they're still green at the moment so I'm going to leave them until they go black and then I'll pick them and dry them off. I had a very good success rate in growing them from seeds when I bought the seeds. So I think harvesting some acanthus seeds is probably a good thing to do. The dahlias have done well this season and um, they've all got seed pods on them as well. So if you uh, want an easy plant to uh, propagate through seeds and definitely dahlias are the ones to do it actually down here I've got a, a parsley that's uh, in flower at the moment at pollination um, and they tend to self seed, in fact even if I look around the base of this parsley in its pot I can see some baby parsley seedlings already so I probably don't even need to harvest the seeds, I think I can just transplant some of the seedlings that it's self seeded with that's always good to have parsley in the garden one of the uh, gherkins got away on me and uh, looks a bit more like a, a cucumber by the end of the, the time that I found it so what I did with that is I've sliced that out and took some of its seeds out got rid of all the, the fleshy pithy stuff around the seeds put them on some paper and they're just drying out in the sun inside so we should have some of our own gherkin seeds for next year they do reckon that if you cut your own seeds that's the better way of doing it than buying seeds really because the seeds that you produce tend to have adapt and thrive in your own individual gardening condition so that's just something to bear in mind that you know those plants that thrive in your garden and produce seeds are probably the type of uh, strains of that variety that you want to keep going in your garden also got some globe artichokes that have uh, 
gone to seed and they've got had the, the purple thistle type flower on them so I'm just letting them st- still they're, they're very brown and woody looking now in fact all the foliage of the artichokes have disappeared um, so I'm just leaving two flowering heads there um, and we'll collect those seeds for later and again tend to once they sort of at a, a browning off stage when they're on a dry day harvest them bring them inside let them dry off put them in a, a wee envelope or something like that and label them so you know what what's what ready for the next year's sowing season now the artichokes I've actually got them sharing a raised bed with rhubarb and the rhubarb which I just put in this raised bed in spring have absolutely thrived they've been ridiculous the quantities of of rhubarb I had rhubarb pie last night and I've got equally as much as I've, I've got frozen in the in the freezer at the moment and we've got lots more rhubarb stalks coming through of course you can't eat the leaves of the rhubarb that's poisonous but the actual sugary stalks themselves is what you you harvest one tip that we sort of picked up recently when we were looking around old houses and gardens in the UK last year I think one of the National Trust Gardens said they leave a reasonable amount of leaves late in the summer on their rhubarbs just to encourage the crowns to strengthen ready for winter so don't sort of pick all the leaves throughout the season but leave some there just so they can put more goodness back into the the roots and the, the crown ready for the next season I've got five here but I mean they're huge I'm sure I can still pick half of these leaves and keep the stalks and still have enough to sort of put back into the crowns for winter the trouble is we've got so much at the moment mind you the uh, student gardener said he, he quite like rhubarb so perhaps we'll pick some and give him some today so there's other crops going at the moment we're still picking some strawberries I've got um, my strawberries are under nets and they are still they're not flowering but they are ripening and so I've got some just to finish off inside We've also got some of the strawberry runners are coming out so again it's that time of year that you can propagate and what I'll do I think next is I'll get some potting soil small garden punnets and then just put each of the the runner plants from the mother plants into the soil just so they firmly establish a root system before then I'll I'll cut them and I'll separate the runners from the the mother plant strawberries did well this this season the raspberries behind them not so good I mean the plants have thrived I mean but the actual fruiting maybe they're just getting established because again that was a relatively new raspberry bed and um, we've got some but nothing like the strawberries I see we've got lots of wasps wandering around them at the moment too not that there's anything really for them to feed on but again early autumn that's when they all start coming out getting a bit more aggressive looking for uh, food supplies what other things were good this season tomatoes great tomatoes we're picking those at the moment we've got three different types of tomatoes we've got the little 
round cherry type tomatoes we've got the roma acid free ones and then we've got sort of more medium size tomatoes they're doing well you know we've been eating them for a month or so zucchini courgette they were brilliant a few that went got got away on me didn't pick that up in time it became more like marrows cucumbers not so good actually this this season we didn't get any (laughs) had seedlings that i'd raised but they didn't cope with the transplanting it was at a dry period that we had over summer if you can remember that and they died in, in the transplanting process and i tried to to grow some more seeds later on but they didn't germinate the seeds must have been too old so we, we didn't get any cucumber this year we had gherkin and as i said you know one of the gherkins grew so big it really was a, a cucumber rather than a gherkin and that was that was fine that served the purpose and beans we actually we had some beans for the first time and they did quite well as far as other fruit bushes go the, the lemon have been really good which is good given the, the problem that new zealand's got at the moment with the lemon supply so our established lemon bushes have been producing the whole time so that's been great quite a few apples on the go at the moment i mean ours are all cider apples which i haven't got around to making cider for a while so we tend to just put them into the compost heaps and uh, let them break down or we'll give them to the hens because the hens enjoy them those agapanthus uh, look like they're in seeds at the moment which some people think is a terrible thing but uh, they do help shore up the bank and they look keep the weeds down actually the hens are still laying let's just see what what today's pickings look like okay we've got one so far but it is early in the day so there's still time for another one actually this time of year some of the less welcome creatures in the the garden start showing themselves bush rats and mice are sort of again like the wasps are getting a bit on the move and a bit uh, looking for warmth and food supplies around the hens they do tend to attract rats and mice so we're keeping the the bait out there to keep them down there's a few other things on the go at the moment I suspect that might be for another day to tell you what we're doing there but definitely it's bulb planting time time to get larger bulbs out like daffodils etc I just need soil to do that and put those in large containers so I just grab this bag of soil I'll continue on with my planting out of bulbs but I suspect I've run out of time so we'll do that for another entry in the Hut Gardener's Journal But sadly, that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. 
Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hut Zone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John MacDonald NZ. If you have a suggestion of a hut story or a piece of poetry or music, then please do message us either on Facebook or email the team and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Do join me again next Thursday in the Hut Zone show. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some local music from Avalon Intermediate School and their Kapahaka group, Hairi Ra. program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.